Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of It's Easy Sun, Life Lessons on Your Journey to Your Promise. I first want to pause and say thank you to everyone who has texted, called, or emailed to say they were so appreciative of the first three episodes of this podcast series. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the kindness and love extended to me. My commitment is to having interesting guests on this podcast that remains as we try to fulfill our goal of empowering young people through the experiences and testimonies of those who have blazed trails for us all. With that said, we have a treat in store for our listeners today, especially the young ladies who tune in every week. Coach Moultrie always liked to use an expression, keep things simple. And then he'll in turn said, son, it doesn't always take a rocket scientist to figure it out. I use that expression often myself today, despite never meeting a rocket scientist. Well, last summer, I had an opportunity to meet a rocket scientist, and she is my guest this week. Her name is Dr. Camille Wardrop Elaine. And let me just briefly give you some sense of her background and her accomplishments and why today's show is going to be uh, an absolute treat. She's originally from Trinidad and Tobago, and I know she'll get into that in a little bit. But she received her BS in, in mechanical and aerospace engineering from Howard University, go HU, a master's degree, an MS in mechanical engineering from Florida, uh, I'm just going to say FAMU, go Rattlers, an um, MS in aerospace engineering from the University of Maryland, and her PhD in educational leadership from the University of Houston. As we get into the talk today, you'll learn more about her. I had the, the distinct honor of meet and meeting her last summer, as I said, and you are in for a treat today. So ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, let me welcome to the show this week, none other than Dr. Camille Wardrop Elaine. Dr. Elaine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome. So with a background like that, I, I, what I will say to you is what we've done with all our guests is to have a free-flowing dialogue and conversation. And we just, I talk less, you talk more, and we learn more and more about you. But more importantly, what we're looking to achieve with these podcast series is for you as an accomplished scientist, a doctor, scientist, engineer, working for NASA and all the interesting things you do is for you to share with our audience your journey, your journey from Trinidad and Tobago, uh, high school, your way to Howard University and college and then your career, your early years and where you are today and just share some words of wisdom and your experiences has taught you over the, the, the years. And that's simply what we will do today. And what we have discovered is from the listener, listeners and the feedback is it's your authenticity of what you have experienced that has impacted people the most. So if that is with that as a backdrop and guardrails for our conversation, let's just get started. So tell us a little bit about your, your, your land of birth and your early childhood, your family, and what grounds you into what you're doing today. Yes. Well, again, thank you for having me, Gerald. Um, as you said, I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, during a time when, you know, not many girls 
did math and science, not math, but science, um, and space was not a thing, right? So it's amazing that I've actually created this career because it, it just wasn't something that was in the forefront um, when I was growing up. But I was always a really curious little person. Um, and my mom tells the story of when I was two years old, I would ask about how did the electricity turn on, you know, in the street. So from very young, I was like asking those kind of questions and really curious. Um, and so I had parents who always stressed education, the value of education. And my mom was a serious disciplinarian. I'm the last of three girls. Um, so she never played with, played around with <laughs> our education. She always stressed that nothing came before your education. But as a kid growing up, I remember um, falling in love with space. As a six, seven, eight-year-old, I remember going out outside every night, sitting on the trunk of my dad's car, and just being fascinated by the night sky, like all the stars, not even knowing what that was, like not having a concept for, you know, planets and, you know, our solar system and all that. I was just like, what is out there? Like, why is it so black? What are the spots, you know? Just that fascination about space, not mm -hmm. knowing back then that I was setting my life on a trajectory. Um, but my life, early life, was also filled with inquiry and exploration. And so I was really good at, like, building things, breaking things down, building them back up. And so I always say when, my mom, when something broke around the house, she wasn't calling my dad. She was calling me to fix it because I was just that little girl, you know, <laughs> who would just want to, like, you know, just like that's how my brain worked, putting things together. And so, yeah, in school, I did really well in math, like a little, like math prodigy. I didn't know that, though, until I was in high school. And then one day, I think it was like in Form 3, we all, we had just gone into Form 3, and um, we had gotten a test in math, and I was the only one who got a perfect score. And that was wow. like an eye-opener. And I remember going back through all my elementary school report cards and not even realizing back then I would be getting 90s and 100s. Like, and then the light bulb went off like, wow, I'm really good in this subject. Mm -hmm. And so math and science were the things that I focused on. I went to all-girl high school, um, which is you know, um, very familiar in the Caribbean. That's a thing, all girls, all boys. Um, back then, not a lot of girls, as I said, wanted to do science. And so I was like one of 10 girls in my graduating class that focused on all the sciences and advanced mathematics and stuff like that. So really, those early years really were setting the tone for what I would end up focusing on and loving and advocating in my adult life. Now, let me ask you a question. I used to live in Trinidad. I don't know if you knew that. I lived in Trinidad for two years, 1985, no, I didn't. 1985 through 1987. So I have to ask, what high school did you attend? 
I went to St. Francois Girls High School in Belmont, Trinidad. Okay. The, typically, pretty smart young ladies are through that school, correct? Yes. I, yes. I, I, I am familiar. So high school <laughs> in Trinidad, you know, we're under the British school system in the Caribbean. Um, it's, it's a lot of hard work, uh, you know, common entrance, mm-hmm. and then you have your CXC, and then back then, the GCE, A-levels, mm-hmm. and so on. So you went That's through right. all of the regular, uh, what we call uh, lower six, upper six, all the way, then matriculated to Howard University in the States? That's correct. So I went to St. Francis of, um, uh, high through GCE O-levels, and then... Um, went on to do A-levels, lower six, upper six, as you said, majored in physics and chemistry and advanced oh. math at, at the time, I think it was. Mm. Um, and so the thing about, so then I had to decide. In, so in, in, in um, doing A-levels, I had a teacher who literally was obsessed with chemistry, organic chemistry. Mm. I remember her, Miss George. <laughs> She was so passionate about that subject, and that passion really translated to her students. And that's why I say it's so important for us to have good teachers who are passionate in the subjects because it really could light you up as a student. And so I fell in love with chemistry. And now I think I hear kids saying, young people saying, organic chemistry, are you kidding? Please. (laughs) But I knew, like, I had such a good teacher that it really, you know, she translated that to us. And so knowing that I was good in math and science, when, and, and my family, my sisters were already, they had already migrated to the U.S. So me coming to the U.S. was already like a given right, Mm. to study. And I had to decide, well, what do I want to do with my life? By this time, I'm in love with planes because we traveled a lot as a kid um, coming up to visit my family in New York. Say every two years I would be traveling. I was traveling since I was five years old. So I just fell in love with planes and how they worked and stuff like that. And then we had a family friend. You know, back then there were only five professions, right? Teacher, doctor, lawyer, accountant, and nurse. Those right. were the that five. So nothing else. <laughs> nothing else existed. And I knew I didn't want to do any of those. My mom was a nurse. Um, I didn't want to do any of that. But we had a family friend who was an engineer, a petroleum engineer. And you know, Trinidad is the mm-hmm. big in oil, mm-hmm. oil and gas. And so he was a petroleum engineer. And I don't think I quite knew what an engineer did, but I remember asking my, but I remember it being so different from anything else that I knew anybody did. And so I remember asking my mom, does he make a lot of money? And she (laughs) says, yes. I'm like, I'm doing that, you know? (laughs) And then I realized you needed math and science to do engineering. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on the right track. So now I have, I'm deciding like what college I want to apply to and what I really want to study, what type of engineering, because there were so many different disciplines, electrical, mechanical, civil, chemical. And so I had three choices. Of course, petroleum would have been a natural fit because I grew up in the land of oil and gas, um, chemistry, chemical engineering because I fell in love with chemistry because of my teacher. But then I thought, no, I love planes. 
what if I learned how to design those? And this was something I didn't, and nobody else I knew ha- was doing that. And I always love to take on things that nobody else, I like to blaze a trail that is uh, least traveled. And so I made the decision to come up and study aeronautical engineering. How did you choose, how did you choose Howard? How did Howard get on your radar screen? My girl, so actually, when I first came up, I came to New York. I started at Hofstra University my oh, first year because okay. my sisters, my sisters lived in New York. So it was just like, okay, my parents were like, no, you're going up, you're going to live with your sisters. You know, it was just like a comfortable thing for them. But then one of my best girlfriends was at Howard. Actually, a couple of my girlfriends from Trinidad were at Howard. And I was like, no, one, I want to get out from under my family, my sister's house. Like, I want to be truly independent. (laughs) And so I just decided I was going to apply, and I got accepted. And I got on a train with my two pieces of luggage and took the train down to Washington, D.C. and never looked back. So that's how I got (laughs) to Howard. But lucky, what I knew was they had a program, a mechanical engineering program, that offered aerospace. So I focused on that, you know, the aerodynamics, the propulsions, all that stuff is what I studied in my junior and senior year. Um, and I just, it, it was like, I fell in love. So How, Howard University is a, is a big family for those of us who had the opportunity to attend. So family for you was big in Trinidad. Family was big for you in New York. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what happened at Howard in terms of the Howard family that nurtured your your hunger for knowledge and what's, what what was the support system at Howard like for you? Um, so we had a huge Caribbean community at Howard, which is what I assimilated into. So that was really familiar to me. But I also, I grew up dancing, ballet, modern, tap, jazz. So when I went to Howard, they had a dance company. I wanted to continue dance. So I got into the dance company. um, And that was another community that I had, not of Caribbean um, folks, but uh, American folks. So I had these kind of two communities that I was able to, you know, navigate and then I had my roommates who were all people I grew up with in Trinidad and went to school with. So that was a whole other set of support system. Um, but it wasn't easy because I, back then, even now, there weren't many girls. I think there were like three of us majoring in mechanical engineering. So from an engineering perspective, I did not have much support Oh wow! at the school. You know, because your, all your professors are male, you know, and all your colleagues are male. So from that perspective, and it still is something today, right? I mean, there are not many females. We can talk about that later, but there are right. not many females who are getting into engineering or the sciences. Um, and uh, it's a lot because um, they're still very male-dominated fields, right? And so it's hard one, when you don't have representation, when you're not seeing people who look like you doing those fields. But two, getting through college is in engineering is just like, it's incredibly challenging. And so not quite having that support system of people who understand 
what you're going through or recognize that you're isolated right. somewhat, right? So that was pretty hard. But let me go back to one thing I forgot to tell you, which really changed the trajectory of my life when I was a freshman. I'm really dating myself. But um, <laughs> I came home from school one day. It was January 20th, 1986. And I turned on the TV and uh, all the news was about the space shuttle Challenger blowing up upon launch, killing the seven um, crew members that were on board, including the first teachers I was going to go to space. Wow. And I would tell you, Gerald, before that, I really didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything about a space shuttle or a rocket. I didn't know anything about a place called NASA, and I didn't know anything about being an astronaut. And in those moments, looking over and over at this coverage of this tragedy really just, you know, it just set my life on a different trajectory. I decided that that is what I wanted to do, that I didn't want to just study to how to design planes. I wanted to know how to design rockets and spacecraft. I wanted to work for NASA one day, and I wanted to fly in space as an astronaut one day. And that is really with the, one of those pivotal moments in my life that, you know, um, just set me on a different trajectory. Wow. Let me. So one of the as I heard you say that, it it, it hit me something that was said to me the other day. When I wrote this book, it's, the title is It's Easy, Son, Quit Making Things Difficult. And it's based on my, my track and field coach. But he coached males and females. And the whole book is around this idea of common sense. So before we move from your educational, your, your elementary, high school, and, and first degree in college, can you just share with us some common sense things that for that phase of your life, what grounded you in terms of your academic pursuits? Because to me, from just listening to you now, you had a laser-like focus in terms of math, science, yep. but, but then everything else had to just kind of take shape. You just mentioned the Challenger rocket and so on. But what, what advice would you have for young people? Because I do, do have a number of young uh, teenagers and, and young adults that tune in, what would be your advice for them going through that experience right now at the, the high school and the collegiate level? Absolutely figure out what your passion is. And that may take longer than in being in high school. It may take you going through college. It may take you post-college really to figure that out. But your goal should be to find your passion and follow that. That is one thing. But I would also say the importance of mentors at that age. Mm. And I, w I probably would have maybe taken different turns, still ending up at the same place, but different paths if I had mentorship. I had no kind of guidance like that. You know, I wanted to fly, you know, fighter jets. And I didn't know anybody in those fields. So I didn't. You know, I didn't know how to get to that path. Um, the whole thing about me getting on the path to rockets and spacecraft was just this innate drive um, that I had. And I tell you, along the way, in undergrad, in grad school, my friends did not understand this. I would have posters on my wall at the space shuttle and 
and astronauts. And <laughs> they were just like, what is this? Like, it was so foreign to them. And wow. some of them would be like, well, why do you think? I remember having one friend in grad school saying, you are dreaming that you think you, you'll become an astronaut or you could become an astronaut or something, you know? Really? But I just always, yep, I just always had that laser for, and my, my family didn't understand it for a long time, you know? But I just always was very determined very laser focused, as you said, and I just kept plugging along. How did you find mentors in that space? Because that's something young folks will ask me a lot. How do you find a mentor? And and my response is usually, you got to look at someone doing something well that you're attempting to do, and reach exactly. out. Exactly. And but sometimes that it's is the, exactly it. the, the the fear of getting the word no said to mm-hmm. them is a deterrent. Um, does that? Is that an issue for you, or did you just basically charge the head? The most you can tell me is no, but I'm still coming. It was an issue for me early on in my life. Of course, nobody wants to get rejected. And um, even now when I get no, as old as I am, it's still something, you know, and you just, oh, you just get this little pit in your stomach. But then I remind myself, what is a no? You keep going, Right. So I know in high school, in college, that can be, that could be really um, a showstopper for any young person. But just know that when you get one no, keep going and you will eventually get a yes. So you don't stop. That is what perseverance and determination is. It's you keep going in spite of what shows up around you. And nobody knows better for you than yourself. And what you want for your life and where you want to go. And so you just keep, you keep reaching out to those folks who are in your field, the field that you want to pursue. And, um, you know, and yeah, it, you, you're ultimately going to be successful. So now, thank you for that. So now I want to shift because I have a question. Why two master's degrees (laughs) and in two very, very difficult subject areas? um, Mm -hmm. I just would definitely, I'm interested to hear myself. You have a master's in mechanical engineering from Florida A&M, and you have a master's in aerospace engineering from the University of Maryland. Why the combination of the two? Was that on your trajectory to now being on a path to get to NASA? Not at all. Not at all. That's an amazing story. Okay. So when I was graduating from Howard, knowing that I wanted to work at NASA, laser focus, NASA is a U.S. government agency, so you have to be a U.S. citizen. When I migrated to the States, I was a permanent resident, so I wasn't quite a U.S. citizen. And so I remember in my senior year interviewing with NASA Goddard, Space Flight Center, but they obviously could not hire me um, because I wasn't a citizen. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to give myself one more year in grad school and, oh my gosh, I'll have a master's degree. You can't go wrong with that. Um, But it buys me time to get naturalized as a citizen and then I can apply. And I'm telling you, I just thought things happen. When you speak what you want into the universe, I swear things happen. <laughs> so I happened to get accepted to 
actually it was Florida State at the time, but the Florida State and the Florida A&M College of Engineering is combined. So oh, it's okay. FAMU FSU College of Engineering. So I got accepted into FAMU FSU College of Engineering. And NASA at Kennedy Space Center had kind of like a partnership. I did not know all this. Like, I'm telling you, clueless. I was just going to buy time until I could become a citizen. And I was only one of two African-Americans in the grad program. Wow. At the FAMU FSU College of Engineering. Wow. And NASA was really interested in, diver- you know, in diversity, you know, getting more people of color, um, into the center and all that stuff. And so they had this partnership with the school, the College of Engineering. And I got like a mini fellowship kind of to do some research. And so by the time I graduated, I had already naturalized as a citizen. And they offered me a job to start to work at Kennedy Space Center as a flight systems test engineer. Now, this is six years after I decided that this was the path I wanted to go on. Mm. Like, it it blows my mind to think that. That was 25 years ago. Right. (laughs) That's not that that far. So (laughs) so I spent two and a half years. If you know anything about Kennedy Space Center, it's our launch complex. So it's where the U.S. launches from. Actually, when we had, like, space shuttles and stuff like that. Um but it's now where our commercial partners launch from. So that is the launch complex for the United States space program. And so I got to test um, flight, you know, space shuttle systems before they flew, um, making sure the astronauts were going to be safe in that environmentally controlled, you know, um, cabin. And so I spent two and a half years literally working on the space shuttle and seeing launches that just every time blew my mind. Like it was, I remember the first time that I saw the space shuttle system up close the night before launch, the day before launch, sitting on the launch pad. And I'm like right beneath it, looking up. It was the most mind blowing, awe inspiring moment. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. So for two and a half years, I got to live that life. And then I decided, you know what? I want to learn how to actually design these, like the aerodynamics of it, the propulsion system. My first master's was really kind of materials, composite materials. But I really wanted to go into like the design, the aerodynamics and stuff like that. And that's why I went on to do my second master's in a different field, because that was, you know, really where my interest lie wow that's all i can say camille wow that is wow <laughs> i'm listening to you speak about the, the the reasons and the rationale for doing it and the only word that i could come up with is wow so yes. so you, you get these two degrees and you're now working with nasa and you're working on spacecraft and you're the engineer there and um what was that like in terms of once again i'm going to always come back to your preparation, and then in the moment when you're there, what 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 is that like? Can you just explain to our audience, you know, what is like working at NASA? <laughs> um, 
It, so I will tell you, I took a circuitous route because when I left to go back to do my second master's, I actually had to leave. I actually resigned from oh, NASA, wow. not wow. thinking, oh, I will get back in and it would be so easy. And so I wanted to focus on my studies full time, not realizing that that I was not, it was not as easy to get back in. And so when I was done, I could not get back in because we've had a hiring freeze for decades. Um, it's just so hard. It, we just, it, yeah, it's not as easy as putting an application and getting hired, right? right. Um, and so I actually went to DOD. When you see, you don't see it on my bio, but I spent a few years at DOD doing missile defense, of designing and developing missiles, which is still aerodynamic. So I was always using my skills, my passion for space and, and, and fly, anything flying, you know, um, it, it really, I've always done that for my career. The thing is, missile defense is kind of the, it was the entree to the space program. So it was the beginning of the space program back in the 1940s or whatever. So I worked on missiles, um, de- de- designing and developing missiles for the Missile Defense Agency. And it was there that I applied. I had applied for the astronaut program before. But this time, I really was in a better position. And it was while I was there that I got the call to, to interview for the astronaut program as wow. a finalist, one out of 100. And they had four or 5,000 applications that year. And so I got to, they brought me to Houston. I didn't even know I would end up back here, but they brought me to Houston for a week along with other people, interviewed you know, did all these medical tests and stuff, and they selected 12. I wasn't one of the 12. But even in that was a lesson for me that no matter, even if you don't actually reach that goal, that highest goal that you have for yourself, it's all about the journey. Mm -hmm. It's not about the destination. Because the things I learned about myself on the way during the application process, during the interview process, You know, I really had to go back and think about why is it I love space? What is it about being in space or being an astronaut that really calls to me? Like I had to really do a lot of that soul searching. And so I learned so much about myself. And so after that process, I decided, you know what? NASA is really the place I want to be. Civil space, peaceful uses of space is really what I want to do, not defense. And luckily, I applied, and I got, they picked me up again. This was like a few <laughs> years later. Right. After I left for this kind of like windy road, windy road. But that, I mean, since then, what is it like working there? It's interesting. There's nowhere else where, one, you get to work on the things you're passionate about. The people who work at NASA spend their whole careers, 40 years, 45 years at one place because they are passionate about what we do and the mission, right? So that is one thing. I work around the smartest people I've ever met, um, for sure. Um, It's very competitive. Um, It's a lot about leadership. Um, And so it hasn't always been easy. Um, as a person of color there, 
and we could talk about that with hidden the movie hidden figures and all of that stuff exactly but right. for me it's been it's been i have had an incredible incredible career and i tell you i've worked on every major human space program since the apollo program i was too young for that but the space shuttle program the international space station program the Orion program, which is the vehicle we are building to send astronauts beyond Earth, which we haven't been in 50 years. Um, and now I'm leading the, our commercial lunar program because we're going back to the moon, wow. sending humans back to the moon by the year 2024, the first woman, next man, um, on the surface of the moon by 2024. And I work with our commercial companies to kind of create this lunar economy, this marketplace on the moon where they get to deliver our science instruments as early as next, next September, September of 2021. Wow. So I have, I mean, I have to, you know, I say from the, the little brown girl born in the, the small dot in the Caribbean Sea to being on the front lines of the U.S. space program, it's, it's been an incredible journey. Wow, and now, now people will get a sense of why I was so excited to have you on the show. One more thing about education, and we'll switch to your charitable, because you're just as extensive, your background in your charitable work. But you had a doctorate or, or EDD, PhD in educational leadership. Why would mm-hmm. you get that degree? Because I would imagine, do you have ambitions of being a college president or... What was the reason behind that? Not at all. That tied back to my foundation, which we're about to talk about. My work in the world, my my um, my advocacy, my humanitarian work in the world is about educating, empowering, and inspiring young women to be future leaders in science, technology, and engineering. And so I felt like I needed to understand the plight, why is it that we cannot get young women, we can't inspire them to get into the STEM field, right? I needed to understand that and to bring credibility to the work I was doing with my foundation. Um, And so that's why I went and I got a doctorate. And, you know, my, my dissertation was on how do we build schools? How do we design schools, all girls schools? that would um, inspire and motivate girls to pursue STEM careers. So that's the reason I got it, It was just to be a credible source when I was traveling around the world, speaking on this issue of girls' education and girls' education in STEM particularly, that, you know, I had credibility. Wow. Well, since you went there, something caught my eye, a quote from you. I, I got it from your website. It says simply, my intention is always to leave people empowered, enabled, and present to their own greatness, and to use my life as an inspiration to others. Now that is, sounds to me as if that is a, what we call a personal statement, but is that what undergird your desire? Because you founded the Bright Stars Foundation, I believe in 2007. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is that the organization that is beneath your desire for making sure that young girls of color are seeing careers and a path to the STEM fields? 
Absolutely. That is what it's about. And that came about back, it, it was really, uh, I founded it formally in 2007, but I started thinking in 2006, I was sitting in, at NASA headquarters where I was working. This was a few years, a couple years after I had like interviewed for the astronaut program and all that. And I was sitting at NASA headquarters looking around me and realizing there were no little ones who looked like me in the pipeline. Like mm-hmm. no girls of color, no boys of color, but definitely no girls of color. Like even, you know, in the pipeline to study space or to study science. And, but I always had my passion for space always included extend. It always included having other voices, other faces, other countries in the conversation and space, not just, you know, the, at the time, the spacefaring nation, which was U.S., Japan, you know, countries in Europe, Canada, Russia, of course. Um, I, I was like, why can't countries in Africa be a part of this conversation and in Asia be a part of this conversation? And, I, and putting those two things together, I realized that that could actually only happen through education. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I traveled to Kenya one summer with this organization. Um, they, they put on a program called Under African Skies. And what we would do is go into high schools and work with the students on kind of hands-on practical applications to what they were learning in theory. So, for example, Newton's three laws of motion. You study that. You know how in the Caribbean we really, these these subjects are really theoretical, right? They're all in the Mm -hmm. book. And you very rarely get the practical applications. Like, how the heck does this really function in real life or is applicable in real life? Well, they have the same issues over there. And so they'll be learning all these, say, physics theories, but it would just be so abstract. It was just theories. It was just words in a book. And what we would do is really show them how those theories were really applicable in real life. So I remember doing an experiment with them going from school to school, demonstrating Newton's three laws of motion by launching paper rockets using Alka-Seltzer and water for your thrust. And they got to like, like work through all those laws and see like, wow, are you kidding me? I'm learning um, to every action. There's an equal and opposite reaction. And this is what it looks like. And so we'd also go into all girls schools and they were so fascinated by what I did and who I was. And I came back and I knew that I needed to formalize my organization really focus on girls, focus on girls' education, focus on girls' education in STEM, because that was how they were going to get to space. Mm. And so really all that, like I crafted this vision and mission um, and created my foundation, which is 12, 13 years old, doing, and over the years I've impacted or I've really spoken to, hopefully empowered and impacted thousands and thousands of young people, young women. I mentor one-on-one. I think I have at least, I've lost track, 20 20 protégés or something from 10 countries around the world. So people just reach out 
young people reach out. I would get an email probably once a month, once every two months without fail, um, just asking for advice, asking for guidance. We get on Zoom, we get on Skype, and, you know, I talk them through that. If they're in college, you know, I empower them through, you know, what they should be studying, how they should be approaching their school. And then even young professionals, young space professionals, I've mentored um, through their careers. So that wow. is the work that I'm passionate about realizing in the world that girls, young women find their voice. It took me 30 some years to find mine. My, my hope and dream is that every young girl, young woman will find their voice. They will use and they will use their voice for the betterment of humanity. And so that's why I do my work in the so, world. So your work in the world and, when I when I first met you, um, I listened to the presentation. I read your bio, and I, when I saw you were a graduate of Harvard, I was like, "Yay!" And then I kept reading, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, she's an international name, but I don't think many African Americans or people of color, unless they're in this STEM field, they'll actually know who you are." And I, I to me, mm-hmm. at first. That was disheartening. But then as I listened to the folks introducing you, I realized that you've done this broad, extensive amount of work. So, so how can folks connect with you or, or, or learn more about your foundation? Just want to make sure that before we move on um, with the interview that you have an opportunity to just share, you know, how folks can connect with you. Because we do have a challenge, and the challenge is that the STEM fields continue to provide the greatest opportunity, but the preparedness for young people to get into the STEM fields continues to be a challenge. And I, I, I'm a executive vice president at Morehouse, one of the prestigious institutions in the world, the only institution in America that caters to um, African-American or men of color. And mm-hmm. you see it there. So, so how can folks connect with you? Because if we think about it, we are going to have to find ways to partner to lift a generation that might not necessarily see STEM as viable. Absolutely. Well, and they use it all the time, right? So this is technology. Like, we are using technology all the time. Young people more. I mean, I always say babies are coming out of the womb writing code, right? (laughs) Because it literally is a part of, our world in the technological age. What I would like to do in, in, as we think about education reform in the midst of the moment we find ourselves in is technology and STEM has to be a part of that, right? And we have to educate our children not to be users of technology, but to be innovators of technology, wow. right? And so that's where the work needs to be done. But people could find me on, I mean, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and on each of my um, pages, you will find links to either my personal page or my foundation, um, brightaststarsfoundation.org. And I have a program called STEM Models where I feature, um, it's increasing. I have a few women um, of color who are in unique scientific or technological or engineering fields that have, um, who are there to serve as mentors. 
And so you actually could click on their name and an email comes up and you can write an email to them asking them to be mentors if you're interested in the field that they're in. So, yeah, so they can find that information on my website. And I will definitely create a hyperlink uh, from my website to yours so as people can click on that as well. You said something that will trend, which will take us through the end of our time together, which we could be here for a good little bit. But <laughs> in terms of you said you found your voice after 37 years. Mm-hmm. So you you have had some experiences, you've had some highs, you've had some lows, but mm-hmm. you are definitely what we in society would call a success. It took yeah. you 37 years, but can you speak to us a little bit about, because of the emergency, I call it, or the urgency of having the STEM education be broadened, how do you get that? period of time down from 37 to say 10 how do we mm-hmm. how do, what what would you think are the methodologies that we can utilize to get that done so it's, it took me 37 years to find my voice not my passion right your voice uh, your very voice. early very on. early your but voice to, when i say find my voice i mean really speaking up in the world right mm. what am i what am I willing to give my life for? It's really the question I asked myself during that time. I was doing a lot of leadership, development, growth and development, transformational work. And really the question I was asking was, what would I give my life for? Wow. What is worth speaking up for? What do I want to use my life for? And so it was, for, it was around empowering girls. Wow. to find their voice because I knew how long it took me to find my voice and to find like my place. And, you know, now people want to hear what I have to say. Back then <laughs> I didn't think I had anything to say, right. you know? <laughs> and so, so that's what I say. 37 years to find my voice, but no, definitely finding your passion. Yes. We need young people to really to go into STEM fields and be successful. It starts in high school, where the rubber meets the road is in high school. Of course, elementary and middle school, you should be engaged and exposed to science. And science is the inquiry. It's an inquiry, right? It's understanding the natural world around us. Um, so, yes, you should be exposed in elementary and middle school. But it's really in high school where you are deciding, okay, what courses do I need to take in order to be successful in college? The APs, the advanced placements for sure, AP calculus, you know, AP, any one of the AP sciences, AP physics, um, you know, if you can take computer science. So those kind of courses set the foundation so that when you get to college, it's not as hard because an engineering major is hard for boys or girls, regardless, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have that foundation in high school, you may not get a four or five in AP. You may get a two or three, but you were exposed to the material. You were exposed to the content. And so when you got to college, now you're seeing it for the second time. And hopefully, wow. you know, it's a little easier for you to master. So that's why I focus on high school girls, because I feel like that's where really you make the decision to go left or go right. Now, once they're in college, 
we have to have support systems and structures to make sure that young women are retained in those fields. Because again, even now, as it was back when I was taking it, it's still isolating. There's mm-hmm. still not many female professors that you could look up to that will understand your journey, right? And so we still, we need to put structures in place to support them to get through, to retain and matriculate, right? And then once they get into the workforce, it's a whole other set of challenges. <laughs> um, with and No, it's, it's so multi-layered and so complex as to why only 24, 25% of all females in the STEM workforce all females in the workforce go into STEM fields wow. as scientists or engineers and a single digit percentage of African-American women and men, you know, so it's, uh, it's the statistics are eye opening and staggering and we need to find way, but it's all along the way. It's not just one thing. High school is one thing. Then college is another thing. But once you enter the workforce, women feeling like, oh, my gosh, am I supported to have a life-work balance? You know, when you see your male counterparts working 10, 12-hour days. As a scientist, I'm going off to have a baby, and I'm missing a year or two of research. Oh, I get married, and all all my publications with my maiden name, and all of a sudden I have a married name, and there's a gap. You know, like there are all these different challenges Mm. that women face in the STEM fields that, wow. you know, I mean, are well-documented, well-researched, but still we need to put, like, active measures in wow. place to increase those numbers. Absolutely. And I can tell you, you're going to have a, a, a mentee soon. Um, I, <laughs> Your daughter. My daughter. MIT. Yeah, she's going, to, <laughs> she's going to MIT in the fall. Yep. And she, she's Very gonna proud be, of her. She's going to be studying chemical engineering, and um, wow, actually, actually, she starts next Monday. She got she got into the Edge program as well. She's super excited. But the more I listen to you and and um, hear your story, um, she probably needs to have you on speed dial somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> there are actually some great professors at MIT too that I can yeah. put her on to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who, uh, yeah, really progressive, and yeah, so yeah. they'll she'll have a support system there too. Yeah, yeah. Paula Hammond is the chair of the the chemical engineering department, so we've heard a lot about her. So, doc, mm-hmm. Doctor Doctor Elaine, um, I have a number of things still here on this list, but you know we're we're close to time, and what I'd like to do, like I've done with all our guests, is just to ask you to share. Um, you've shared a lot about the technical steps that folks will have to take, the passion, finding your voice. Could you just, with the time that we have remaining, contextualize for us what you see happening today in terms of society as a whole mm-hmm. and some pearls of wisdom around what you see in the next five years, the next 10 years for it could be um, young girls of color in the STEM fields or just science and STEM fields in general. But how does that fit into what you see the future of, for lack of a better word, our world is and how we, we play a role in it? Oh, my gosh. We have 
to be, we have to be involved. We have to do a better job of preparing our young people to be involved in STEM. We see we're going through this pandemic, right? And it's all about science, even though some leaders choose not to, to choose to ignore it. But it really all it is all about science. And we see how the science of the virus has shaped policy, right? Yeah, it's yeah. no coincidence that we came up with a six feet social or physical distancing pro- protocol, right? They knew the virus traveled that long, that far before it dropped the floor or the ground or whatever, right? So we see how science is playing a role in our everyday life and how we navigate this very strange time we, we find ourselves in with the pandemic. So mm-hmm. it, and, and that this virus is disproportionately um, affecting our community. Yes. yes. So we have to do a better job of preparing our children to be more science literate Mm. and not just science literacy, but really be at the forefront of the science and engineering field, whether it's biomedical engineering, where you are designing these and producing these ventilators that are keeping people alive. Right. Like that is engineering, right? To Mm -hmm. understanding the virus is, is so it's really important. And again, I said, from a technological perspective, we can't just continue to be users and consumers of technology. We have to make sure our children are innovators and inventors. And, um, you know, we have to you just have to do a better job of, of stressing that. Wow. Wow. Dr. Elaine, you definitely have lived up to your your personal statement of always wanting to leave people empowered, enabled, and present in their own greatness. I am going to find a way to write that down and, and present that to my daughter, and she can put it on her laptop on, on the very top. Because I think this statement in and of itself, and you, the individual that you are, definitely embodies what, what you have put as the personal statement. And I definitely know that some of our listeners uh, today, especially the young people, would have gotten quite a bit of information for them to build their own roadmap or much things to ponder. Um, We're close to time. Uh, Anything that you would like to leave with us, anything you'd like to share that we haven't covered? There's quite a bit that we could still go over, but I want to also make sure that there's nothing missed or nothing you'd like to share with the audience um, in in any general sense. Yes, let me just say we find ourselves in this, Wow, very surreal time with civil unrest and just an awakening, it seems, across our country on all sides. I know for me, it's a very surreal feeling talking, talking about race relations to my white counterparts. It's, like, it's something that was so taboo for so many years. Um, so we find ourselves in this time when we know that things have to change. We know that we have to dismantle the structures and systems that are in place that perpetuate institutional and systemic racism, right? Mm. But there, there's also work that we need to do on ourselves. I always say government can legislate every part of our lives, 
there's also a personal responsibility that we have to take for our lives in parallel to dismantling these systems and structures and policies that keep us suppressed and oppressed. But there's responsibility on our lives that we need to take to be able to show up as our best self in the world. Yes, ma'am. Right? And so we have to look at ourselves too and figure out how do, how do we, one, kind of decondition our brains um, from thinking that we are not worthy, we're not enough, we're not beautiful enough, we're not smart enough to instilling in us and our children and beyond that we are beautiful. We came from kings and queens. We are worthy. We can be anything we want to be as long as the systems and the structures are fair and equal, right? And so that is, that is our responsibility and that is the work we need to do as a community. And so, um, you know, I would... I am going to continue to speak up, um, to empower, to inspire the young people that I come in contact with to know that they also have a responsibility for mm-hmm. their lives. Mm-hmm. Wow. I can't think of a more fitting way to end our time today. This, this more than exceeded my expectations. And I will tell you, your, your co-honoree on the night I met you, uh, Dr. Mason, I will try to get her on as well because her story is just as incredible and the work that you ladies do with young people, especially young people in our communities of color, needs to be shared far and wide because you're doing a work that is so sorely needed today. And I personally just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for accepting this to come on the show with little old me. I keep telling people (laughs) that I'm not a radio personality. I'm just an accountant and a CPA that wants to use the life lessons from an old track and field coach to do exactly what you're trying to do as well. And that is to empower young people to be better than they think they can be on a regular Mm -hmm. and consistent basis. And with that, Dr. Elaine, I thank you so much for joining us today on It's Easy Sun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our show for today. And please, when we get a chance to always meet, greet, touch, and agree, we share this information with those that are within our spheres of influence. And with that, have a great week, and we'll see you next time on It's Easy Sun.